Verbal, get ready to roll indeed. This is the College and Kimball Podcast. I am your host, Jeff Burkhart, getting set to dive into yet another installment of the Know Your Enemy preview series. I'm going to be doing an in-depth look at each and every Big 12 team ahead of the 2022 college football season. We're going to be taking a look at TCU today. Before I do dive into my interview with Jeff Mitchell, a quick call to action for our listeners. Follow us on Twitter if you haven't already. It is college underscore Kimball. Subscribe to our podcast on whatever your preferred app is. You will be able to find us on all the major streaming platforms, including Spotify and Apple. And if you have a few extra moments, we would certainly appreciate a rating and a review. All that said, let's go ahead and dive into it. Look at that! Touchdown! Sam Morris! Pass is picked up! Give him hell, TCU. I'm pleased now to be joined by Jeff Mitchell. He covers TCU for the Horn Frogs 24-7 site. That is hornedfrogblitz.com. You can find him on Twitter at the Frogcast TCU. And Jeff, I wanted to start off by rewinding the clock a couple of months and discussing the end of the Gary Patterson era, just because there is a fairly noticeable parallel, at least in my mind, in terms of how Gary and TCU parted ways and what went down with Kansas State and Bill Snyder a few years ago. The word that comes to mind so quickly is stale. The messaging to players getting stale. Recruiting stagnating. Fan buy-in continuing to diminish. Just all the tropes, everything that Kansas State fans went through, we watched TCU fans go through that same thing, and it becomes tenfold more difficult when you think about under whose watch it's happening because Gary Patterson very much the same way Bill Snyder was the architect of Kansas State football Gary Patterson helped TCU wade through the post Southwest Conference minutia that was Conference USA Mountain West and the success that he had in the early aughts is ultimately what made TCU an attractive program to the Big 12. And it's hard to believe that bid to the pro- to TCU rather was extended over a decade ago now. And while it did take Gary and his staff a couple of years to adjust to Power 5 conference football, they proved very quickly that they were willing to take on that challenge and that they could, in fact, compete and win at the highest level. We see that 2014 TCU squad just crush everything in its path on the way to 12 and one and a resounding peach bowl win over a very good Ole Miss team. We see Kenny Hill quarterback, a squad that makes the big 12 championship game when it's reintroduced in 2017. There were some pretty high peaks for this program under Gary Patterson's watch after it joined the big 12, but things do just start to decline very much the same way that they did under Bill Snyder, where all of a sudden, bowl games aren't even a, a lock anymore where you're legit worrying about getting to the six-win mark and you might have a, an uptick where you get back up to seven wins and then the next season you're questioning so many things about the program, not just roster building and, and everything in between, but just kind of that existential, what what is this all building toward? Is, is the direction under this coach still there or 
is it going to be time to, to make a change? And, and TCU and Gary ultimately mid-season last year decide to, to part ways. I don't think anybody really expected it to go down in that manner, but that's ultimately what ends up happening. And I, I have to believe that part of it was difficult enough for a lot of TCU fans to watch, but then to couple it with the fact that Gary ends up taking a consultant position on the University of Texas coaching staff, I have to imagine that there there are some pretty hard feelings among TCU fans and that they are, in my mind, pretty justifiably upset with the way that Gary handled himself on the way out the door. Is that safe to say, or is, was it a little bit more amicable in, in terms of how the two parties went their separate ways? Well, you know, it's kind of the same feeling that, that K-State fans might have. Like, we can tell the truth about our program that if Gary Patterson had not become our head coach, you know, back in 2001, we would be in the same spot as Tulane or SMU. You know, private school, used to play high level in the 50s, and then just stopped investing. And uh, I, I can admit, like, if Gary Patterson had uh, become the coach and then stayed with multiple opportunities to leave, we would be a, a middling private university in, in the AAC getting ready to play Rice UTSA in North Texas. But he didn't. He stayed here and he did an amazing job. And he probably just the game, the, the times changed. And I'm not sure he adjusted for the last few years. And so I don't fault him for being taking that job he was he was let go at, at TCU he's a man a free man to go get a job wherever he wants so if he goes to Texas goes to Texas it'll be weird you know i've seen the pictures on the internet of him in in the UT orange and that that's a little awkward i will not lie but i i don't have any hard feelings towards patterson i'm grateful for everything he did and at this point he's probably doing what he wants to do which is just sit and break down defenses and figure out how to scheme well on the field so it's going to be it's going to be a little awkward when you see him in the booth with the burn orange on you'll probably have the obligatory tweets and um uh vomit tweets about that but it, it's what it is and i'm grateful for everything patterson did but we're pretty fired up for the sunny dykes era so i will say if patterson can help texas beat Kansas. It will be the most amazing coaching accomplishment he's ever done. So I, I'm looking forward to seeing if he's capable, if he's up for that challenge, because Texas seems unable to beat uh, Kansas. Well, when anybody hangs 57 on you, I'm sure Gary's looking at the film of that game and seeing oh. so many things, <laughs> so many things that need correcting and and whatnot. And, hey, uh, even as a K-State fan, you had to love that game last year when Kansas beat Texas. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll admit, like, it's the Kansas basketball, the the T-shirt basketball fan that I can't really tolerate. It's the, the the KU football fans, and there are plenty of them out there. They're they they tend to go away and hiding at, and just start investing all their emotional energy in the Chiefs, you know. After usually once you get through September, but there are a lot of KU football fans out there, and and for the ones that that really do follow the program and have been willing to sit through the Charlie Weiss era, the Turner Gill era. That, that was pretty awesome to see. And the story, too, with the, that Casey kid who caught the two-point conversion. Yeah. Good you know, for him. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you love to see it. And that's that's one of those great things that college football is all about. But as far as TCU goes, uh, looking ahead to this upcoming season, you mentioned it. Everybody's fired up about the Sonny Dykes era. 
Uh, I, I got to admit, though, to, to me, I didn't hear a lot, not a lot of buzz about that hire. And granted, it might have just been because he's just literally walking across the street from SMU coming on over to to coach TCU. But I, I guess how was that hire received by fans? And, and, and on to kind of piggyback off of that, do, do people feel that that this is the guy to, to lead us into this next era of Big 12 football? Well, we are not used to a coaching search. And so if you're a TCU fan that's 30, you've never really been through this. And so it, it was it was awkward to, to be in a spot where you had that whole month there when he was let go after the K-State game when, uh, you know, you got this window of, you know, we know, uh, all jokes aside, the TCU talked to Deion Sanders. They had more than a few conversations with uh, uh, Billy Napier, who we knew was kind of holding out for a, a blue blood and so, the, but, but it kept coming back to, yes, they talked to Napier a couple of times, but they're really wanting Dykes. Yes, they talked to Dion, but they really want Dykes. So I, I know that uh, Jeremiah Donati, the AD, did a thorough job with his search. He, I know they, they talked to Tony Elliott, who took the Virginia job, who was the OC at Clemson that I was pretty high on. Um, I mean, winning two national championships, you can't really argue with that. But Dykes was who everybody felt good about for a variety of reasons. He has, obviously he has deep Texas roots. He understands the nature of the game to maximize the resources of your location, transfer portal, DFW, uh, work, comfortable working at a private institution. Uh, he, he did a great job at SMU. I mean, like I know Chad Morris had one bowl game and that got him the Arkansas job in a game that, you know, I think it was against Tulane where they couldn't even tell on replay if the guy got in or not. And he got in and they called it, they got to, they got six and six, they got to a bowl game and he didn't even coach because he bolted for the Arkansas job. And we all saw what happened there. Sonny Dykes won games at SMU. He really did. And he beat TCU twice. So I think the hire was perceived as um, a safe, competent hire. But since his press conference, the interest of the fans has just continued to grow. We used to joke that it was Fort Patterson. No one could come to practice. No information would leak. Sunny, like all spring, hey, show up for practice. Fans out there, media shows up. You can, any, you know, you could have had a, K, a, KS, a K-State beat writer just show up and, and wander around, and they really weren't going to do anything. They were, and this is new for our fan base. And so opening up practice, I know I'm, I'm an old man, so I don't care about this stuff. Their social media game has gone through the roof. People are excited about it. They're investing in digital communication to uh, get the get the word out about the the buzz and the hype of the program. And so on all those fronts, things are things are looking really solid. The spring game was the most formal spring scrimmage that that TCU has has maybe ever had. So it's on ESPN plus. They actually have competition on the field. They're running ones against ones. And I, I feel really I mean people people actually showed up and were excited for this. And this this, this sound this may sound like so normal for other you know fan bases in the Big 12. Patterson never wanted to do anything like this. I remember, I think it was the last year before COVID, he did everything he could to cancel the spring scrimmage that was already just kind of a, a come watch the players warm up and do drills. And he tried to cancel that and they could they they finally relented. And so to have a big blowout, get to, get the alumni together, get fans out there. Get get people on in, in the fans uh, in the in the stands. That that's something that Dykes has really brought in, and it's brought an excitement uh, to the to the fan base. That let's be honest. Ever since TCU beat Stanford in the 2017 Alamo Bowl, after they you know played OU for the Big 12 title, lost that game, 
There's been nothing exciting for TCU football except the Cheez-It Bowl, which is only remembered because of what an embarrassment in ex- uh, of excitement that it was. There's no, no one has anything to say about TCU since they finished in the top 10 in 2017 other than the Cheez-It Bowl. And I, I have a feeling Dykes knows how to change that. Just hearing you bring up some of those talking points is really transporting me back to how I was feeling those first couple of days after Chris Kleiman had been introduced as Kansas State's head coach. There's that new excitement surrounding the program. There's the optimism surrounding recruiting. There's all of those artificially created topics that you get to discuss now on message boards of what assistant coaches are going to be on that first staff, what prospects are they going to be able to flip and commit to our program, what commitments do we currently have that we feel confident in this staff being able to retain. All of those things are great from the fan perspective, but what was even more critical as a byproduct of Bill Snyder stepping down, quote unquote, was the Kansas State social media and creative teams finally having the opportunity to really spread their wings and start to create a brand around Chris Kleiman and start to usher in this new era of Kansas State football. So much of what the game is today is your presence and engagement on whatever social media platform. Now, I'm like you in that I I certainly love and appreciate the the old school mentality that Bill Snyder and his staff had. And some of my fondest memories were, were going to games as a teenager and watching those teams with Jonathan Beasley and L. Roberson just run all over the Big 12 and watching those dominant defenses with Terry Pierce and Josh Buell and Terrence Newman and everybody in between. But so much of what college football was in the early aughts was truly just about the on-field product that you could package and sell your success. And that was enough to allow you to continue to reel in high caliber talent and keep you playing and competing at a high level. That's not the game anymore. And the social media folks, as I said, were really given a lot of bandwidth to start to do things that we just as fans had not seen. And that's been probably the most refreshing thing is to see K-State social media engaging with recruits and you see all the excitement that they're able to stir up around the program. That just really wasn't present the last couple of years of the Bill Snyder era. And you could argue the entirety of the second Bill Snyder era. And I imagine that TCU fans were likely experiencing a lot of that same frustration and that we're having that existential question and crises of, well, what is our brand now? I feel like looking at what this staff was able to do just in the scramble class alone, they hit the transfer portal very hard and have a a very respectable collection of talent coming in for this first group. Our fans equally as bullish as what the staff will be able to do moving forward? You know, with with the scramble there, because early signing day, as you said, it just changed everything. You know, Bill Connolly uses that phrase year zero now. You don't have a year one, you have a year zero. 
And so when you you get hired the you know a couple of days after Thanksgiving and then you have early signing day, what the 18th or 19th of December, that's really hard to to build your own class. You know, it, it's it doesn't seem like much from December to late February, but you can you can do a lot in that time. I felt good about the class. They got some solid wide receivers. I they held on to the the highest rated players in the class and they flipped two two four stars from SMU that Dykes brought with them. And so I feel really good about that. But probably more important, they they filled in well in the transfer portal. And this is where this is what Dykes did an amazing job at at SMU. Get get three and four stars that went away from DFW that want to come back home for a variety of reasons. It's not just because they're sitting on the bench. And so you take a defensive back like Perry, who is transferred from Colorado. You know, we we open with Colorado. That there's no no excitement around the University of Colorado Buffalo football program right now, uh, all, other than they want to come home, <laughs> <laughs> which which maybe we could talk about. But but Perry's going to start in the back five, and I see uh, multiple transfers that come in that I think are going to be able to make an impact. And so I don't know that for a program like TCU, you're going to only be able to evaluate how they're doing off of. Um, the early signing day. I think it's going to be signing day plus portal. And when you look at signing day plus portal, I feel good about who they're going to put on the field this year. And they're already off to a really solid start for recruiting right now. I think the last I checked, they've been bouncing between 28 and 22. And uh, there's a commitment uh, uh, within an hour of us recording it right now that it looks like the Frogs are going to land a four-star running back from from the state of Texas. So I I feel good about the direction that that, the Dykes has recruiting going. So often now we hear that expression, hire the opposite of your ex. And TCU really did lean into that line of thinking and bringing in the offensive-minded Dykes to replace Patterson. I don't think that this impending identity change is going to be detrimental at all to the frogs frankly offense is the name of the game right now in college football and if i'm new oc garrett riley i'm looking at all the production that's coming back from last year's squad and i have to feel pretty comfortable about throwing the book so to speak at whoever i land on a signal caller and and that's where i wanted to start the discussion around the offense you have the folk legend chandler morris with that 531 yard three touchdown performance and the massive upset over Baylor last season. And then you've got the known commodity in Max Duggan, who threw for just over 2000 yards, 16 touchdowns to just six interceptions last year. Do you feel that the battle between those two is going to be resolved heading into week one? Or is this maybe an instance where we see a back and forth throughout the year and we never really know who's going to get the green light week to week? You know, Dykes, to his credit, and I actually really believe he's telling the truth, does not have his mind made up. He did not lie to one of the quarterbacks so that he would stay. I think it is still to be determined. And it'll probably, you know, Dykes used the phrase that everybody else will figure, the team will figure out who the starter is, and then the coaches will will listen, you know, on the field, in the locker room. I think it's going to be Chandler Morris. You know, I, I have had my I, I just have a soft spot in my heart for Max Duggan because he played high school football in Iowa. I played high school football in Iowa. He's a Division One player. I was not a Division One player, and so I, I, I just appreciate that, that you know a scrappy kid from from Western Iowa is is playing for TCU. That said, I think we've seen what Max can do, but we've also seen what Max can't do, and Max can hit a deep ball. Max can also throw it into the tuba section 
unprompted when there's a wide open receiver streaking down the sideline. Uh, Max, you know, in a perfect world, Max is probably playing H back or outside linebacker rather than than running back. And so I think Chandler Morris, uh, you know, you go back and look at what he did in the Baylor game, which, by the way, I just want to get on the record, kept Baylor out of the playoff, <laughs> on which I am so grateful. <laughs> uh, I, I think I think Chandler Morris probably has the lead 55-45. But as Dykes has said a couple times, the, the frogs are in a great spot because they have two they have two quarterbacks that could start that have that have started at power five and won big games at power five and so what regardless of what direction they go they're, they're the frogs are in good shape I just think it's going to be Chandler Morris regardless of who it ends up being TCU is going to have its top seven wide receivers back in terms of receptions made in 2021 so I don't think you have to worry about the passing game that much. The running attack is where some people might have some questions. That's kind of tongue-in-cheek because TCU also does return five of its top six rushers. But the one rusher they are losing is the top rusher from that 2021 squad, Zach Evans, who did string together four consecutive 100-yard games. He was the first TCU running back to do so since LaDainian Tomlinson. And... Do you get the feel if this is going to be a by-committee approach or have Dykes and or Riley indicated that there might be more of a bell cow in the running back room for this year? Well, Keandre Miller is the running back that will be carrying the ball this year. And I, I don't want to sound like some homer or I don't want to make light of uh, Evans going to Ole Miss, but Frog fans love Miller and he has – Every time he gets the ball, he has the ability to get north-south. He knows how to run through people, and he knows how to run past people. And so Zach Evans will be missed. He'll probably be missed out of the backfield as a receiver more than he will a running back. But Keandre Miller is 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 going to be the bell cow this year. The other guy I keep an eye on is Amari Bailey out of Louisiana Lafayette, who transferred here. His brother is actually a commit to becoming here. And I think I think he is he looked he I got great reports about him out of spring ball. He uh I, I have a feeling he is gonna end up, you know, running for four or five hundred yards and be the kind of running back that it, you know, he's not going to be first or second team all Big 12, but it's going to be the kind of utility running back that you need in the Big 12 to be able to catch the ball out of the backfield as well as get north-south because I, the run game is going to be different this year. I, I, I stole this phrase. I cannot figure out who, to, who I stole it from. So if I'm citing a listener, please go ahead and blame <laughs> me. This offense is going to run, run downhill and throw downfield. You know, that, that, that they one of the things I remember about getting beat by SMU in 2019 as well as 2021 is that at the end of the game in the fourth quarter, SMU just ran it down our throat. We could not get a stop against them. And so the idea that this is just air raid and then, you know, this is not Mike Leach offense. They want to they want to line up and they want to run the ball and they want to use an H back and they want to run between the tackles and, and grind out the game when they have to. And so I anticipate uh, Keandre Miller, as well as Bailey, being the guys that are going to be able to to carry the ball late in the game when it matters. Are they going to want to throw it downfield? Yes. Is Quentin Johnson going to have a great season? We need him to have an amazing season. But I think you're going to see an offense uh, with the talent that they have at running back as well as wide out. I don't know if I had Quincy, uh, 
Quincy Brown is a wide receiver you need to keep your eye on. He's put on about 17 pounds in this uh, offseason, and he was a highly rated four-star out of of, uh, Mississippi or Louisiana, and this is going to be a season I think he has a breakout. Look for the Frogs to get downfield but not be afraid to just run it down your throat when it matters late in the game. And it's not as if this TCU team struggled to run the ball in 2021 either. It averaged 196.2 yards per game on the ground last season. That was good for 29th nationally, third best mark in the Big 12. You've talked about it at length. There are plenty of weapons on this offense, both in the running back room. You've got options to stretch it vertically in the passing game with Darius Davis, Quentin Johnston, and so forth. I think this TCU team is poised to have one of the better offenses in the conference this season. Now, I do have that question, though, about control. And you're going to get that question whenever there's a new head coach that's introduced. How much control is that coach going to have over the side of the ball he's known for? Do you foresee Garrett Riley being given the bandwidth to make the calls on Saturday? Or is this going to be an instance where Sonny Dykes is exerting control over everything from game planning to on-field calls to checks and everything in between? Well, I think this is going to be one of the great unknowns. He obviously had a great trust for Garrett Riley at, at SMU. And, you know, we, we, we do have Lincoln's little brother as the offensive coordinator at TCU. And so how that's going to shake out, obviously Dykes has a vision for the program, but he seems to be the kind of leader. I I hate the cliche. He's the CEO, but he gives direction to his lieutenants and then lets them go and and do what, what they were hired to do. And so I think Dykes obviously has a vision for the entire program. He has a vision for the offense. He has a long history of, of coming off of, of all of the offensive tree that has been revolutionized in the state of Texas and the Big 12 for a generation now. But it has, it has morphed, and there are variants of that. And Garrett Riley is going to run something different than, than Mike Leach ran when, when Sonny Dykes was the quarterback's coach out there all those years ago. So I think you can say it's Sonny Dykes' offense, but I think Sonny Dykes gave Garrett a clear charge when he was hired, and then he trusts Garrett to go run it. Let's shift gears now and move to the defensive side of the ball, as I feel like this is the source of the angst that exists within the TCU fan base, and and justifiably so. New defensive coordinator Joe Gillespie comes to Fort Worth by way of Tulsa, and he's going to have his work cut out for him here in this first season. He's taken over a unit that finished 119th nationally in total defense, 122nd in rushing defense, and 118th in scoring defense, giving up just under 35 points per game. These are low marks, not just in the Big 12, but in all of FBS. And I guess not to sound dense here, but just what happened on that side of the ball in 2021? You know, we've been asking this question for for more than one season because, I mean, this was just kind of a capstone to a series of declines of the TCU defense. You know, I I remember being on a podcast at, at the peak of COVID, and people were like, "Well, when you got a Gary Patterson, de- it was with the Iowa State guys. You got a Gary Patterson defense. You know, it's going to be tough." And I'm like, "Guys, it's not. It's just not anymore." Uh, and so I've got me, I've got my theories, and I've, I've sorted all these out on on our message board, so it has to be true. Uh, I think I think the four two five that Gary Patterson he didn't create it, but he he birthed the the in, what what it means for college football. It's like the equivalent of running the wishbone now. You know, when it hit, it was insane. And you were all, you kind of had to have your head on a swivel and you did, you had to watch your reads and you didn't know who had the ball. And the 425 was was essentially much the same thing. And if you get into the weeds of what the 425 was, 
where you had the linemen doing things that had absolutely nothing to do with the linebackers, that had absolutely nothing to do with the with the field corner and the boundary corner. That was revolutionary. Well, guess what? We've been they've been running that for 20 years, and people have finally figured out how to crack it. And the game has changed. And so just like uh, the air raid, as we've said, has all these variants. Uh, Patterson, who I uh, will worship his memory and thank him for not having us left in the American Athletic Conference, uh, that time ran out. And I don't believe that he was willing to adjust the way that he ran his defense. And I'm not an X and O guy. I'm not a scheme expert. I don't do scheme podcasts, but that's just my observation as a guy that has followed the team since I was 19 years old, is that I don't think that the 425 was built to accomplish what it needs to now and that there were everybody kind of figured it out. And then I'm going to use a word that I hate using because we're talking about 20 year old kids here. Uh, they just quit. And I don't blame them. You know, that the, the, the story that did leak out over the last two years, it, it was just no fun playing there anymore. Everybody was hanging on. Everything was stale. I, I don't even fault the coaches. It just, it was like, a bad relationship that we just all needed to end and where, where you, you know, you can maximize talent with a bad attitude on offense, but you can't do that on defense. And I think that that really manifests itself on the defense. You go back and watch the Oklahoma state game. They just, they just ran up through us like tissue paper. I know Oklahoma state was a top 10 team last year, but they just pistol whipped that defense last year. And it was the first time I thought, all right, they're done, done. And they're, they are looking forward to turning in their equipment this year. And it, it was kind of the capstone of a several-year creep that became a decline that became the, the end of it all. And so what, what are they going to do on defense going forward? I The defense has to be better. There's just, I mean, like nowhere I, to go but up, you know. Yeah, there really is nowhere to go but up. Even if it's just, oh, we're energetic and we got a new coach that yells at us in a different way, they have nowhere to go but up. Now, Gillespie is going to be installing a 3-3-5 base defense that was made popular by Iowa State's John Heacock several years ago, and a number of defensive coordinators in this conference have since adopted that as their base alignment, including Kansas State's very own Joe Klanderman. Is there apprehension about being just another team to introduce a defensive look that the conference offensive coordinators have already been seeing now for several years? The thing that has me the thing that has me expired, excited, excited about Gillespie is that in interviews with Dykes about why did you hire the staff he did, he said, I, you know, Dykes did not have this long relationship with Gillespie. He just said, all right, who gave us the biggest headache in conference play when he was at SMU? And it was Gillespie and it was Tulsa. And, you know, we we're around the Tulsa program. We're obviously not in the conference with them, but, you know, they're not Houston. They're not Cincinnati. They have to scrape and scrap in order to build a defense. They don't have this recruiting juggernaut like, say, UCF or, or Memphis that has access to good players. And he went out and he built a defense that found a way to be competitive, probably kept Montgomery's job for him by his ability to put the 3-3-5 on the field with less talented players. And that gets me some excitement that he knows how to take what he has and build a defense that that um, can can stop their opponents just by what he has in house. Now I've 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 watched the multiple interviews with Gillespie, and he you know he's just like a kid in a candy store because you know the thing about TCU is recruiting did not drop off in the last 
three or four years. The, they have more talent now than they had on the 2014 team, the 2015 team. Their recruiting rankings are consistently number three in the Big 12. They just did not execute, and they were just not deployed well. And so Gillespie comes in, and he sees a guy like D. Winters that's a 6'1", 230-pound pound linebacker that runs like the wind, and he's like – these are toys I've never had before. Nope. And so I'm excited about Gillespie scheme wise, but I think what I'm excited about is that he has accomplished, he's done more with less and he now has more than he's ever had before. And I'm going to be interested to see how that translates. I'm glad we're not running the two four two five because everybody had the four two five figured out. The defense is going to be the reason why this TCU team does or does not make a bowl game in year one under Dykes. I look at the returning pieces coming back on that side of the ball, and and frankly, if I am the new D.C. Gillespie, I'm pretty encouraged by what I feel is going to be at my disposal. I've got returning guys really at every level that I feel like I can plug into this new system and get production out of. You've got Dylan Horton tied for the team lead in sacks a year ago with O'Shawn Mathis. He's back at defensive end. The aforementioned D winners and Jamoy Hodge, those two combined for 132 tackles a year ago. They're back at their linebacker spots. And then you've got Trevious Hodges Tomlinson, who's a bonafide stud at corner and is going to be a first team all Big 12 guy by season's end. Like I said, there are some nice pieces around which to build this defense. The questions I have are much more about the intangible side of things. How quickly can these guys adopt the change in philosophy, moving to the new base, understanding pre-snap alignment, knowing where to be? How quickly can they flush the tail end of the Gary Patterson era out of the system? I only bring that point up because of what you talked about just a few moments ago, how Things really weren't fun anymore for guys. Win or lose, going into those meeting rooms on Monday was just becoming a chore by the tail end of the season and the tail end, really, of the Gary Patterson era. How quickly can you reignite that fire on the defensive side of the ball and get those guys excited to play and compete again? It's going to be something that's that's tough to restore. And then, coupled with all of that, is will those defensive guys in particular be able to make it through some early season lumps when maybe they're not seeing the results that they want to see on the scoreboard. And I think it's a good time now to start winding this down and talking about the schedule. I look at the non-con slate and it's not the most forgiving having to go on the road to open up the season at Colorado. You're at home the next week for Tarleton state. And then you have bye week and SMU on the Dallas side of the Metroplex to close out the non-con Obviously, there's going to be some extra juice in that game with Sonny Dykes having less left SMU for TCU during the offseason. You've got a 5-4 conference home and road split, so you like that. But you open up conference play with Oklahoma in Fort Worth. you got to go on the road the next week to take on KU and what could be a very tricky game for TCU. The Hawks gave the Horned Frogs plenty of fits last season. And then after that, you've got home games back-to-back, Oklahoma State and Kansas State. You go on the road to West Virginia the next week, and then we're in the month of November closing things out with Texas Tech in Fort Worth, on the road to take on Texas and Baylor, and then you wrap up the season with Iowa State in DFW. Everything taken into consideration. Do you feel that this is going to be a bowl team, or will that six-win mark elude Dykes here in year one in Fort Worth? I think you're going to see a bowl game at a minimum. Yes, I, I think you're going to see a bowl game. That you know, if they can go three and zero in non-conference play, that'll be the first time TCU's gone three and zero in non-conference play in in forever. You know, probably 
uh, I think it's 2017. And so that'll be the first time they've been able to do that. I, you know, the big, if they can beat SMU at SMU, they'll have more fans there than SMU. Although there will be some fun blood rivalry because the, the, the eight SMU fans that exist were really ticked off that Sonny Dykes left for Fort Worth. So, you know, non-conference, I think, I think the frogs have a, a really uh, high, high possibility of going three and O, but like you said, we get, you know, the big 12 flips back and forth. You get four home games and five home games. They have five home games this year. OU, OSU, Tech, K-State, ISU, all in Fort Worth. And as you said, one of those road games is at Kansas. So I think the Frogs can win six, seven, eight games. Um, you know, if you drink a lot of Kool-Aid, you can, you can, and, and squint your eyes, you can get even better than that. But I think the, fro- I think the most important thing is the Frogs are going to be competitive in October. And the Frogs have not been competitive in October for anything that matters since 2017. I believe it. And, Truthfully, I think this TCU team has all the makings of a dark horse Big 12 title contender. You've got 18 starters coming back from last season's squad. You're going to get that, again, rejuvenated approach to the game with the new coaching staff. We saw that happen under Chris Kleiman. I think TCU's due for very much the same thing this upcoming season. The big question in my mind, can they adjust quickly to the new systems on both sides of the ball, and can they get through the non-con unscathed because I feel like if they're able to do that, they could set themselves up to be playing some very meaningful football coming down the home stretch. So TCU is going to be a fun team to watch this season. I will certainly have my eye on the frogs very much looking forward to the Wildcats trip down to Fort Worth. Uh, one of the final weeks of October of this upcoming season. Jeff, thank you again for giving me some of your time here and being willing to come on the College and Kimball podcast. Before I let you go, could you go ahead and plug your Twitter account? Where can our listeners find you? And where can they check out your content on Horn Frog Blitz? You can track me down on Twitter at, at the Frogcast TCU. And uh, I am a gentle follow, so you can follow me. And I, I don't, I don't badmouth people. I'll make fun of a few folks, but <laughs> usually just texts. So, uh, but you're more than welcome to follow me, and I'll, I tend to follow people back. And I'm proud to be a part of HornFrogBlitz.com, which is the TCU 24/7 sports site. Uh, you can get on our message board. Uh, we are talking football for the fall and we have a 140 page realignment thread and like all big 12 fans we have uh, plenty of hot takes and uh t- twitter takes that we found from west virginia insiders about what's going on in- inside of the future of the big 12 and the pac 12 but you can find us at hornfrogblitz.com we would love for you to come and uh take a look at our site and, and see what's going on there Thanks again to Jeff Mitchell for joining me on the College and Kimball podcast to preview the 2022 TCU Horned Frogs. I'm warning you, don't sleep on them. They are going to be a tough out for anybody in the Big 12 this season. That is going to do it for this installment of Know Your Enemy. Again, I am going to be previewing each and every Big 12 team as we draw closer to the start of the 2022 college football season. Before I cut our listeners loose, a final call to action. Follow us on Twitter at college underscore Kimball. Please subscribe to our podcast on whatever your preferred app is. If you have a few moments, we would certainly appreciate a rating and review if you have the time to do so. With all that being said, I'll wrap it up the way that I always do. Cats, man. If you know, you know.